you are listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on December 8th, 2022 at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In our podcast today, we welcome Rachel Deniega to speak on her research entitled Climate Change, Mobilities, and Social Remittances in Skouramdaz, Morocco which she conducted as a grantee of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Rachel Deniega is a human mobility and environment specialist. She has studied the intersection of climate change and migration since her bachelor's at the University of Virginia, through her master's in human rights and cultural diversity at the University of Essex, UK, and now currently for her PhD in geography at the University of Vienna, Austria. Rachel has worked and done research in sustainable development and human rights across North Africa and Central Asia. During her aims in Fulbright research from 2021 to 2022, she completed fieldwork, including interviews, surveys, and participant observation in Skouramdaz, an olive town in the Middle Atlas Mountains of Morocco. Rachel previously worked there as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer and was very excited to return to beautiful sunsets, couscous Fridays, and the sound of waterfalls and irrigation canals. Rachel, welcome. We're so happy to have you today. Thank you for having me today. So tell me, how did you first get started in your research on climate change and migration? Yeah, thank you. So ever since entering undergrad at the University of Virginia, I've explored the relationship between climate change and human rights, and specifically climate change and migration. Yet, as I've learned over time, and as this field has grown, there's a better understanding of how complex this relationship is. It is not exactly linear that climate change so much directly causes migration in the majority of cases like we often see in the media. As I learned in research in Mongolia for my master's thesis, people have many reasons for moving, only one of which may be environmental change or disaster, but many people also stay or move and come back. After that research, I decided to join the Peace Corps to stay in one place, really get to know the dynamics of one place. I became a youth development volunteer in Skoramadaz, Morocco, which is about two hours southeast of Fez. And I need to emphasize that this is not Skora in the desert of Morocco. People often get confused. This is Skora Medaz, which is often shortened to Skora as well, in the middle Atlas Mountains. The Skora where I lived and worked is a small 8,000-person olive town with nine-month winters, multiple duars, or rather villages, sprawling over the mountain and valley, and three beautiful waterfalls. During Peace Corps, I started questioning residents I knew over Ramadan iftars and walking around with my friend Hussein, what environmental changes people had seen through their lifetimes and how this affected agriculture. I talked to my students and other young people in town about their future dreams, many wanting to move to the cities for education or different lifestyles. The multiplicity of links I saw among climate change, migration, and agriculture were quite fascinating and varied among people and families. I then found my current PhD geography position at the University of Vienna, which was open for a researcher in migration and agricultural change. I believed Skoramadaz was going to be a fascinating place to study these dynamics. Moreover, this research gave me the opportunity to dive deeper into the relationship between climate change and migration. Instead of only looking at climate change influencing migration, the main goal was to look at migration influencing the environment and agriculture, but in the context of climate change. So I've heard you talk a lot about migration so far. So I'm wondering, why did you use mobilities in your podcast title? Is there a difference? And what does this mean in the Moroccan context? Yeah, so I joined my PhD as a project assistant for the research platform Mobile Cultures and Societies, an interdisciplinary group in mobility studies at the University of Vienna. 
There's been a so-called mobility turn in academia, acknowledging that stasis or sedentary life has often been assumed to be the default. However, what we can actually perceive is the normality of mobilities in daily lives, mobilities of people, things, and ideas. So how do mobilities influence processes, and how do mobilities entangle with each other? In my experience in Square Madaz, I definitely saw how mobilities were a natural part of life. Every single family had a member living elsewhere in Morocco or in Europe, or members who were seasonal laborers or family that had moved for educational or marital reasons, or were herders who had daily mobilities. Despite Skora sometimes feeling like it's out far away from the cities, it isn't an isolated town. It is deeply connected in the region, across the country, and across the ocean to family in Canada and the U.S. And the way it's personally connected is initiated through different forms of mobilities, with people coming in and out for different reasons and for different lengths of time. In my research, we use the term translocality to take into account this connectivity and embeddedness of places, people, and things across spaces. The reason I don't use migration is because many of these mobilities that are important in my specific research aren't that classical definition of someone moving from home for good or an extended period of time. For example, I'm looking at how social remittances play a role in agricultural and environmental change. Tell me a little bit more about social remittances. I'm familiar with the term of financial remittances, but social remittances is new to me. Right, so financial remittances, as we know, are monetary funds that migrants send back to their families. Social remittances are the more abstract things like new ideas, social capital, or new values. The term was coined in 1997 by Peggy Levitt, who said social remittances are the intangible transfers of ideas, behaviors, identities, and social capital, which are shared across migrant connections. These intangible remittances act as a form of cultural diffusion across sending and receiving areas. Social remittances provide a theoretical foundation to study the mobility of ideas through human migration or mobilities. So I'll give an example. One man we talked to in Skora Madaz, I'll call him Nabil, went to visit his friend near Meknes. Near Meknes, there are big company-held farms. He saw the drip irrigation and sprinkler systems being used, including on his friend's farm, and he thought it was a good idea to implement in Skora. He had been witness to the environmental changes in Skora. He specifically mentioned the waterfalls getting smaller and weaker than what he had remembered from his youth, and he really had the strong motivation to help recover the environment in Skora. His friend gave him some tools and materials for him to try out drip irrigation for his olive trees back in Skora. Now Nabil has extended the system to include sprinklers for his vegetables, and he's even encouraging other community members to take up the systems to conserve water. To also get back to the previous question, in this case it isn't migration that led him to this new idea, this social remittance of installing a drip irrigation and sprinkler system. It was a short-term visit, a type of mobility. Okay, so what I'm understanding is that these mobilities lead folks to gain new experiences and knowledge, which they bring back to their communities. Is that the right interpretation? Yes, that's right. That is one aspect of my research. So we see how important mobilities have been in the spread of drip and sprinkler irrigation square in Madaz. Several implementers of drip irrigation got the idea from traveling around the region or from jobs in agriculture in other areas. I interviewed one young man who worked as a seasonal laborer near Fez. He worked at this grape vineyard that used drip irrigation. Since in Skora, precipitation has decreased a lot through the decades, he knew that drip irrigation would help use water resources more efficiently on his own farm. So he came back to Skora and expanded his agriculture using a drip and sprinkler system. He was very proud of the results and was planning to plant more trees. Interestingly, the spread of drip irrigation only started about five years ago in Skora Madaz. This is long after the Green Morocco Plan was created in 2008, which allowed for the reimbursement of water-efficient irrigation systems for smallholder farmers. 
And that's because, and what I also examine in my research is, the barriers to implementation of social remittances. Not every new idea or value will be transferred or applied. What I see in SCORE Madaz are a few issues. A big one is the lack of financial resources of smallholder farmers for an irrigation system with a high upfront cost, tens of thousands of dirhams. That's a couple thousand dollars in an area where usual monthly income would be $300 to $500. Normally, it'd be okay if the farmers could apply for and be reimbursed by the Green Morocco Plan. However, another barrier is misinformation about the Green Morocco Plan or drip systems, that you are required to have a certain amount of land or certain kinds of crops. And as Jamie Fico touched on in her podcast with you earlier this year, inheritance has caused lands to be passed on in smaller and smaller parcels. Lands are often separated. Many people lack the titles to their own lands, which means they effectively can't apply for the Green Morocco Plan subsidy. For land titles, Skormadaz has a unique problem. There is an ongoing dispute over the ownership of the land in the main agricultural valley, going back to the 1950s when the French transferred land ownership when they left the area. Until that disagreement is solved legally, farmers will continue to have difficulties getting their land titles and thus getting reimbursement. What some of these barriers to implementation show us are the inequalities and marginalization smallholder farmers, especially in rural Amazigh areas, often face. The government officials I talked to in the region were aware of these issues, but the unique land titling problem will remain a significant constraint. This does seem frustrating. Do you see any potential for improvement and ways of potentially overcoming these barriers in the future? Yes, for sure. So it was good. Several people we talked to were quite enterprising in their approach to these barriers. There were farmers who were planning to save money, going to the city to buy materials and try out the systems, and others who made long-term plans for implementation in the future. One young man, Sofian, had dreams of starting his own cactus fruit cooperative, but he wanted to immigrate to Germany first for further education. One day he said he'd return and invest with his family into a cooperative. Another case study I'm looking at is the entanglement of mobilities of community leaders and government officials in the implementation of two sustainable development projects, forestry conservation and ecotourism. Government officials for the Ministry of Agriculture and the Forestry Agency bring into Skora Madaz their own knowledge and training. They work with community leaders on community-based forest conservation, as well as developing agricultural cooperatives and associations. Meanwhile, community leaders also have their own mobilities in and out of Skora. There's this one influential leader I've talked to. He currently lives in Fez and works for development organizations, but he's still very embedded in SCORA politics and environmental conservation through an association he leads. He makes frequent visits to SCORA as well as to other places around Morocco, discovering new ideas and building his network and social capital. All of that influences what resources he brings into SCORA Madaz and his interactions with the government officials. I also encountered a lot of well-founded pessimism about environmental change, as well as the lack of job opportunities for youth. But I also found inspiration. The reason community members are involved with the agency's forest conservation programming or are looking into developing ecotourism is because they hope for and are working towards building a better future for Scora and its residents, a more sustainable future in spite of a changing environment. So... Your interest is in climate change and in migration. We talked about these things. We talked about mobility, social remittances, barriers, drip irrigation. What does that all mean for climate change? Mm -hmm. Good question. 
So one new Moroccan policy related to agriculture and climate change is the Green Generation Plan, the successor to the Green Morocco Plan. It emphasizes climate resilience and climate smart agriculture. It also includes funding to support youth-led entrepreneurship in rural areas. And one of the goals is to encourage youth to stay in their hometowns by providing an income there. Nevertheless, one of the main points I have made is that social remittances through migration and mobilities have the potential to benefit climate adaptation. What, however, do youth themselves want? Why should they not have the chance to realize their dreams or pursue a better life, whether that's staying or moving? Whichever path forward, we should also not place an overdue burden on youth or out-migrants or seasonal workers to be the main contributors to development, as they are people who are already considered marginalized and vulnerable to poverty and climate change. A second point is that it's not clear if some climate adaptation practices really do benefit the environment. Government programs from dams to drip irrigation can have benefits, but also maladaptive results. Some studies have found that drip irrigation doesn't necessarily reduce reliance on groundwater or aquifers. The dam being built next to Skormadaz is not only displacing people, but will affect agriculture through additional regulations next to it. So one thing to keep in mind is when we speak of benefits, benefits for whom? And that's why it's important to also take a qualitative method approach. The third point is that people are feeling the need to be mobile or bring back new knowledge in response to the disproportionate effect of climate change. Every person I talked to detailed the environmental changes they've seen and the effects on their agriculture. Drought this year has led to poor olive harvests, hurting incomes of people who are already experiencing high inflation. Climate change is happening now, affecting people now and having very real effects in their lives, as I've seen. So through Peace Corps, Fulbright, Ames, you spent a lot of time in Scorum Des. I'm guessing you'll be back someday. Hope so. Um, but where do you go from now? What's next on your agenda? Well, right now I am going back to Austria to finish my PhD in geography, and hopefully I'll be finishing that in the next two years. But I have learned so much about the interaction of these subjects, climate change and migration, and I have so many stories from people I talk to that I want to tell. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully one day writing a book, an ethnographic book. Um, and I'm really excited because I do love Squirmadaz and I'm really grateful to all the people there. So continuing to work on the subject and this research is a way for me to still connect with them. It's clear that you're very integrated into the life of Scora Mendez. Did you find any obstacles to doing your research? Were there any challenges while you were working on some of your studies? One interesting factor in doing my research was that my life was so different from what it had been in the Peace Corps. In the Peace Corps, I was really involved working with women and children. And this time, I had to open up my perspective into this male world a lot of my interviewees were farmers and a lot of them were men. And I think that was not necessarily a challenge, but I was really curious as to how that interaction would go as it would be so different from my Peace Corps years. Oh, another challenging factor in this though was COVID. And so I wasn't really sure coming into this how much I could do group sections or anything because of the COVID restrictions at the time. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit more about your methodology and how you conducted your research? So I did end up doing a lot of in-depth interviews with farmers and government officials in the region, a diverse group of people. I just wanted to see as many perspectives as possible. Um, I had two assistants who helped me implement surveys 
which I'm really grateful for because I looked more at financial remittances and the way people connect through social media or with other family members around the world. And it gave me a background on the things I had been seeing during Peace Corps that everyone has a migrant background. It gave me the data in front of me to really see that aspect in Squirrel Madaz. Um, and then the last thing I did was farm walks. So I would just walk with farmers around their land so that they could show me the crops, show me how climate change has affected the area. And that really opened up farmers to talking about these issues more in depth. Um, Obviously, I was also living there, so I feel like participant observation. And from my time in Peace Corps, I got to know more daily life in the town. So I've never been to Scoramdez, and I haven't spent much time in the Middle Atlas Mountains. Can you paint for me a picture of what it's like there? So when I first entered Scoramdez as a Peace Corps volunteer, it was this beautiful sunny day in December. And we were driving through the agricultural valley, surrounded by olive trees. And then you start going up the mountain and that's when you see these three waterfalls and it's just so beautiful. Um, and there are just towns all through the valley, different duars or villages. And as I learned through my time there, they're each so distinct with their culture and histories and the families who live there. And it goes all the way up this mountain to this cliff at the top where the waterfalls come from. There's this spring that everyone goes to in the summer. But all throughout town, you can hear the sound of irrigation canals. And that's just what I love going back there. Thank you for listening to Maghrib and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. <laughs>